Morning. And I love the energy in this room right now. I really do. God is doing something really cool this morning. I'm excited to see what happens. Uh, DJ mentioned it. We are going to be in the book of Acts today, uh, and then we're going to take a short break. We're going to be doing a series called We Are Genesis 2.0, which about five years ago, I did a series called We Are Genesis. We looked at our mission, our priorities, and we're going to revisit that. And, uh, and I'm excited, excited, excited to share the future of Genesis Church with you. So you're not going to want to miss that. But we are in the book of Acts today. And as I was reading the book, I was reminded uh, again that about a week ago, I dropped my son off at NAU. He went to college. He had his first week of classes this week. Uh, people keep asking me how he's doing. Um, good, I guess. It's a weird thing. I don't know. I think he's eating. I think he's sleeping. Uh, but uh, he had his first group of class. And then this morning, get this, my other son got accepted to college this morning. We got a text. So that's exciting. He loves it when I share that information with you, by the way. Evan, ever just raise your hand and wave to everybody, will you? <laughs> it's all right. You all know him. He's the drummer. But anyway, uh, it's exciting. It's, we're in this season of life. Our kids are going to college. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's different. But it got me thinking about my own college experience when I was up at NAU dropping him off. And I had all these memories flooding back. Now, I didn't go to NAU. I went to a small private school called Buena Vista University in the raging metropolis of Storm Lake, Iowa. And... Um, <laughs> Not true, but uh, I, I had a pretty good experience while I was there, and uh, I actually got a double major in religion, philosophy, and theater, believe it or not. Some of you may not know that, and I like to tell people that if it weren't for full-time ministry, I'm qualified for nothing, right? Like, my majors get me nowhere, but the truth is, I, I didn't actually start out with those majors in mind. My uh, original major dec declaration when I went to school was business marketing. I actually have a minor in business because of it. But I had a theater scholarship. And when I sensed a God calling me to ministry, I made the switch to religion philosophy in addition to a theater major. And the time that I spent as a religion philosophy major was interesting. In one class, I would be studying the philosophy of a bunch of dead guys from thousands of years prior, and in the next class, I would be studying the movement of Jesus throughout the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the study of both, both. I really did, and I still have sort of an intrigue in both, but I soon came to realize that there was quite a difference between my studies in philosophy and my studies in theology. You see, for the philosopher... The starting point is really themselves. The end goal is to try and make sense of our existence and then find universal ideas that apply to many. But for the theologian, the end goal is to try to make sense of God first and then our lives in light of him. And as I was reflecting back on that, it made me ask the question, of myself and also of all of us, what is our starting point when we consider our existence in the world? What is our starting point when we start to think about the purpose of our lives? Is it ourselves or is it God? And so as we come to Acts chapter 17, which is what we'll be there today, we will see God, uh, Paul give one of his most famous speeches, sermons in all of the book of Acts. And it is unlike any other that he gives. I believe it is equally as relevant 
for us culturally today as it was for the culture he was speaking to in the first century as well. So with that in mind, I want you to open up your YouVersion app. I believe it's there today. Uh, and uh, you can follow along with us at everything we're going to be covering in our time today. Where It's a pretty large chunk of text, so that might be a good idea to be in there just to follow along and keep up with where I'm going to be. And uh, if you're in your Bibles today, we'll be in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, you may remember last week, Paul was spending some time in the city of Berea. And while he's there, he meets the Bereans. And they are a smart bunch. They are not slouches when it comes to their devotion to their faith and the religion as Jewish people. And as Paul talks about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about those things, the Bereans are sifting through the Old Testament scriptures. And they're asking the question, okay, where is it written in here? I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually accurate into what God said. And we learned, right, that we are to be like the Bereans, where is it written people? That the Bible is the source and the foundation of our understanding of truth and who God is. And if you missed it, by the way, you just so you know, you can go back and watch it. You can listen to it, go to our website, go to YouTube. You can go to the podcast that we have. You can do all of those ways. You can go back and listen to it if you want to do it that way. Now, as was often the case, the message Paul brings in Thessalonica and then in Berea is received by many and is despised by some. Right? No matter where he goes, this is sort of the result of him talking about Jesus. Many receive it, many want to hear more, and then there's others who want to kill him. Right? There's not really any in between <laughs> for Paul. The result is then again, as Paul is in Berea, he flees the area and he sails south to Athens, which is where we're going to pick up the story today. Y'all ready? Good. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for his buddies Silas and Timothy. He was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, based on Paul's assessment of the city of Athens, it's highly likely that this was probably his first visit there. He, I've never had the opportunity to visit Athens, but from what I understand, it's quite the spectacle, right? I've seen pictures, I'm sure you have as well. The ancient buildings and the ruins from thousands of years prior draw in millions of tourists every year, and yet these buildings and places at the time of Paul is walking the streets were still active. People were still visiting these giant temples and going to worship all of these different gods in the city of Athens. It was a spectacle. And Paul must have had a similar experience as we might. It's because while Athens wasn't what it once was, Paul must have been in awe of the incredible architecture, the sculptures, the artwork, the gardens that Athens is and has been known for. But as he strolled around the city of Athens... Luke tells us, the author of Acts, he tells us that as he's taking in all of the sites, he's deeply troubled because of all of the idols in the city. Greek history tells us that idols were commonplace in first century Greece. Temples to worship each would be located every few steps down the streets. You could give sacrifices to just about any god you wanted on any street corner you wanted. And it was happening and as Paul walked by them, he became overwhelmed by a city that was steeped in idolatry. 
And so carrying his troubled heart, he does what he always does, and he heads to the local synagogue, and he speaks to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And this is what he says, starting in verse 17. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this blab babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? And others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, this is the first time, listen, this is the first time we really see Paul and his preaching spill out into the streets of a city. It spills out of the synagogue and into the rest of the areas around it. And Athens was the perfect place for this to happen. First century Athens was a hub for religious and philosophical debate. People with all variety of beliefs and philosophies on life would gather together in public squares and they would debate and they would converse and they would discuss their line of thinking. There was a very open-mindedness to this as well. Like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's talk about that more. Here's my perspective on that. There was these constant debates, philosophy and how we exist and why we exist was constantly debated in the public square of Athens. And so it's very likely that Paul saw these discussions happening and as he strolled, as he was strolling the city earlier and he decided, hey, maybe I'm going to throw in my hat in some of these discussions as well. And so it spills out into the streets of Athens. In particular, Paul ends up debating with two groups of philosophical thinkers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans Follow the teaching and philosophy of Epicurus and held to the philosophy of pursuing the pleasure of a peaceful, painless, fearless life. Their philosophy was and their chief goal of life was to live life to its very fullest and to avoid pain at all costs. This wasn't necessarily to you know, be accomplished in the eat, drink, and be merry method. Uh, it could be accomplished in all sorts of ways, but the end goal was always the same, to, to suck the marrow out of life, to live it to its fullest, and to try to avoid pain at all costs. The Stoics, on the other hand, held to a very different philosophy of life. The Stoics were strict pantheists. They worshiped all the gods, and they were concerned about their relationship with the gods, which is pretty much a one-way street in Greek mythology. The gods existed, and we were to simply please the gods with the way we lived our lives and the sacrifices we gave. And so because of that, they had this philosophy that all of life was to be lived in a way that garnered moral sincerity, duty, and dignity. They had this rigid approach to life. And their approach was to live life with dignity, whether or not it brought pleasure or not. They wanted to live rightly before the gods, morally before the gods. You can see maybe why we use this word stoic to use, you know, in reference to something that's rigid or immovable. The stoics were that way. Now, as I refreshed my very cobwebbed memory of some of these philosophies, I got to thinking, man, Athens sounds a lot like America. <laughs> I mean, in so many ways, our culture is filled with Epicureans and Stoics. 
Our culture is filled with philosophy that we should live life to its very fullest and we should do whatever we can to avoid pain. And our culture is filled with the philosophy that we have this moral responsibility and duty to display dignity with our lives. We might not call it Epicureanism or Stoicism. Some philosophers of our day might call it hedonism and moralism. But but there's this culture within Athens that, man, it runs pretty parallel to the culture of America. And if you've lived in Western culture and civilization for most of your life, here's the truth. You likely have a tendency towards one of these philosophies or the other. You either tend to be more Epicurean, live life to its fullest, avoid pain at all costs, or you have a tendency to be more stoic, moral responsibility, duty, and dignity. Those are the hallmarks of life. Back to our story, because as Paul debates with these philosophers, they decide they want the leading counselors of philosophers to hear about the things Paul is saying. Whatever Paul is saying, they're like, this is new news. We need to bring it to the high council. So this is what happens next, verse 19. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we like new stuff, right? Like I was scanning through Netflix. I'm like, man, it's all old. Where's the new stuff? And you think it's bad now. Wait for a year. The writers are still on strike, man. We're never going to get another show, right? We like our stuff. We like it new. We're like the Athenians. You got a new idea? I want to hear that. So they, the high council, they gather in this area in Athens, Athens, it's called Areopagus, more famously known as Mars Hill within the church. It was centrally located in the city, with, kind of rose above the city, and they would gather together, and only the great philosophers were allowed to gather at the Areopagus at Mars Hill and have these discussions. And here's what the discussion they have. Verse 22, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows, men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. Up to this point, Paul's been visiting synagogues throughout the cities that he's in his travels, and he's been talking with Jewish people primarily who had a foundational understanding of God and the Old Testament and the prophecies within it. But now he is standing before the high council of Athens who have very little understanding of the Old Testament and the promises of God within it. And he realizes they don't have a lot of reference for the things that he's been telling the Jewish people. So he takes a little bit different approach in his sharing of the gospel message to the philosophers at Mars Hill. And he points their attention to this shrine that he keeps seeing around the city that says, an altar to the unknown God. Now again, the Greeks were pantheists, and they were freaked out pantheists, okay? They were scared of the gods. 
They were terrified of what might happen if they did not please and make the gods happy. And so just to make sure they covered all their bases, they had all these gods, right? Zeus and Apollos and all these gods. And then they were like, let's add this one other one. We'll just call it the unknown god. That way all of our bases are covered. For real, this was the deal, right? And so Paul is like, that unknown God that you don't know the name of, I know the name. I know who he is. It's really brilliant on the part of Paul to connect the culture of their world with the gospel message. And Paul uses this connection point for them to understand God and his relationship to the world. So he tells them, here's the unknown God. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. So Paul starts at the very beginning for them. He goes to Genesis 1, verse 1. And he says, God made the world and everything in it. And this is essential for Paul's argument to the Athenians because he knows that if you don't believe that God is creator of everything you can see, touch, hear, smell, then it doesn't matter. Any of the rest will not make any sense to you. I gotta start here. And I, I have this image of Paul as he stands on Mars Hill and he sort of stands above the city of Athens and he kind of, you know, it's not in the scripture, but it's just my imagination, right? Just sort of gestures to the city of Athens. And he says, God made everything and you cannot contain him in man-made temples. He doesn't need anything from you. I mean, imagine the Athenians, the gods that they worshiped, that's all they wanted was stuff from them. And now Paul is saying, no, 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 no. All that is garbage. God made everything. You can't contain him in one of these buildings. And they don't, he doesn't want anything. He doesn't need anything from you. He existed long before you did. And so therefore, Paul says, verse 24, 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your poets have said, we're his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Paul says, look, because God created everything, he is creator, then we are his created beings. In fact, Paul goes so far as to connect the dots with them, and he's like, hey, your philosophers have said this, right? It is written in some of your philosophical writings that we are his offspring. We are his children we come from him, and Paul is finding common ground with the Athenians to make this case that God is our creator, and we are his offspring. Therefore, we should never try to make him into something he himself created. It makes no sense 
to go, well, here's a piece of gold. This is God. When God created the gold, <laughs> right? Acts chapter 17, verse 30. God overlooked people's ignorance. Paul's going on here about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he, approved, he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And so Paul brilliantly is just setting this gospel message up and he finally gets to the meat of it. And he says, because God is creator and because we are his offspring, then we have been called to repent of our sinful ways like idolatry and place our faith in Jesus who was resurrected from the day dead and will one day come to judge all of us. Now I have to admit, like coming out of the gate, this is a little bit of a bold approach on Paul's part, right? Like one would think you would, you know, a better start with Jesus would be something like the welcomer of the children or the healer of the sick or the compassionate leader. But Paul's real mention of Jesus is he resurrected the dead and uh, resurrected from the dead. And oh, by the way, he's coming back to judge you. I mean, it's not really where I would start. But for some reason, Paul feels like this is a necessary message for the Athenians. And it's like, I imagine this hush falls over the crowd as they hear these words. And then verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. I mean, Paul is hit by roars of laughter. What are you talking about, guy? Are you insane? Which, you know, this is not uncommon for Paul, right? This is, he's, not, he's been there before. Paul's sermons were always met with mixed reviews. Some people love it. Some people laugh at it. Paul is used to this by now and is really only concerned with those who receive the message he shares, which is mentioned in verse 33. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, as I studied this passage, I realized there, there's a couple, there's a number of ways I could preach this text. One would be to look at Paul's method for connecting these cultural dots with the Athenians. I, there's lessons to be learned in that right? He, he walks around. He gets to know the Athenians before he ever says anything to them. He understands their culture. He understands their society. He understands their world, and he actually uses it to leverage his ability to talk about Jesus, this unknown God over here. L let me talk about that. He quotes the poets. He says, that thing they say, that we're his offspring, they're actually right about that. We are his offspring because he is our creator. You know, I think we as a church have a responsibility to do the same. We got to understand our culture. We got to understand our society. And then we got to help connect the dots between the world we live in and the world that God is bringing through the kingdom of God in Jesus. That we can't become ignorant to that. We can't become completely separated from that. We've got to understand it. You know, every summer we do this series called Summer Jams. That's an intentional thing on our part to go, look, God is out there. God is working. Let's help connect the dots between the culture we live in 
the poets of our lives and our society and our generation and the words of Jesus. So that would be one way I could preach it. And maybe I just did. I don't know. But instead, my study of this passage as I was going through it, it caused me to write this down. And I can remember exactly where I was when I wrote it down. And I wrote down, is your philosophy getting in the way of your theology? Paul realized the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics was getting in the way of them truly understanding who God is and the relationship that he wants to have with them. For the Epicureans, their pursuit of happiness and a painless life clouded their ability to see their creator for who he truly was. And likewise, the Stoics' pursuit of moralism, dignity, duty, overshadowed the truth of a God who desires a relationship with his creation. Their philosophies of life was determining who their God, or gods in this case, were. They had all these idols and temples to support the philosophy of life. And Paul tells them, you're starting at the wrong place. And I wonder, are our philosophies of life, and there are many, clouding and overshadowing the truth of who God is and what he desires for us, his offspring? Is it getting in the way of a theology of God, an understanding of God as creator, as savior, as redeemer? Is it possible that we're actually living by our philosophies of life and then interpreting our understanding of God through them? Because that's really what these philosophers are doing. The Epicureans and Stokes have created these philosophies and then that is the filter through which they understand their relationship with a God of any kind. Do we do that too? Where we construct these philosophies of life, this is what it's supposed to be, live life to the fullest and avoid pain at all costs, and then we use that as the filter to determine who God is? Happens all the time. Well, if that's my philosophy of life, then who does God need to be? He needs to be there for me when things get tough. He needs to make sure that I'm making six figures. He needs to make sure that I don't experience pain in my life. That's who God is. But if you read the Bible, that is not the God of the Bible. <laughs> Far from it. If my philosophy of life is, hey, look, it's all about following these rules and moral dignity and making sure that we are, you know, just these kinds of people and then God needs to support that, well, I'm just filtering my view of God through my philosophy. And Paul is saying, this is what you're doing and I want to show you the truth that God is creator. And that our understanding of him as creator in this world should influence and change and determine our philosophy of this life. Let me give you a possible example of how this could be. Right? I mean, for the Epicureans, the philosophy of life lived to its fullest and avoiding pain at all costs. Man, that could be like the tagline of the sign that says, now entering America, right? Like at the Canadian border, it's like, live life to its full and avoid pain at all costs. Welcome to America, right? We want it all, and we want it to happen as easy as possible. And could our understanding of God be highly influenced by that philosophy if we allow it? Of course. 
And then on the flip side, you know, I think it's fair to say that Stoicism is still very much alive as well in our culture. The philosophy of moral responsibility and duty and dignity is in the bylaws, I think, of American culture somewhere. It's easy for us to believe that our moral living and our religious works are are what God cares about most, and therefore, we got to live up to it, and God's got to support that. Do you see how easily our philosophies of life can get in the way of our theology of God? And this is why Paul says to the Athenians, he tells them, God is creator and you are the created. You gotta start there. You have to start there. Some of you need to hear that this morning, that God is the creator and that you are his offspring, that he created you. And so all of life, the chief end of life is to live in service and in worship and in love of our creator. And the purpose of Jesus coming and living and dying and resurrected, being resurrected is to call us back into this relationship with our creator, to eliminate the philosophies that we filter everything through, to instead garner a new theology for us that says God is creator, that he loves you, that he came for you, and that all of life is to be spent loving and worshiping and glorifying and serving him, and that through that, your philosophy of life will come to fruition. It will change dramatically. This is what Paul is calling him to. And listen, some of you are laughing at me right now, just like the Athenians laughed at Paul. And I would challenge that. But I know a lot of you too are going, oh dear, I needed to hear this this morning because my philosophy of life is the filter through which I run everything, including how I understand God. We got to flip that on its head. When our faith is in the theology of who God is, it's only then the rest of life begins to make sense. You know, most historians would say that the philosophers, especially within the the Greek uh, culture and society, were some of the most stressed out people in the world. They were just constantly trying to figure out, how do I make this life work? I got to please this God. I got to please that God. I got to make this happen. I got to make that happen. The invitation that Jesus extends to us is when we start with who our God is, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, I will give you what? Rest. Some of you need some rest this morning to let go of all these garbage philosophies of life and what you believe God is asking you to do when he never asked you to do it in the first place and it is said to point your direction in your eyes and your hearts toward your creator to look to Jesus and to ask the question of yourself, is my philosophy getting in the way of my theology? And if it is, God, I pray that you would tear that down, that I would remember you as creator and myself as the created. God, we thank you this morning for the courage and the bravery of the Apostle Paul at Athens. There's a lot of debate about whether Paul did this right and if he, if he got it right when he... Truth is, I don't really care much about that. I, I see Paul doing everything that he can within his abilities, his limited abilities, to both connect the world of the Athenians to the gospel message of Jesus 
and at the same time to help them tear down some of these garbage philosophies of life that are just leading them to more pain and agony and stress and instead inviting them into a new relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, God, I know that you're calling us into the same, to be reminded that you are creator, that we are the created, that through Jesus Christ, we now have hope, we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have rescue in him. And that when we place our faith in him, all of life begins to make sense that our philosophy of life begins to change and it begins to reflect the life that you would have us live. So Lord, challenge us this morning. Move us closer to you. Change our hearts in this. In your name, amen.